Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, we have some returning friends. The professor is in Christina Greer. Christina Greer is Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University. Her research and teaching focus on American politics, Black ethnic politics, campaigns, and elections, and public opinion. Professor Greer's book, Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream investigates the increasingly ethnically diverse Black population in the United States from Africa and the Caribbean. She is currently working on a manuscript detailing the political contributions of Barbara Jordan, Fannie Lou Ammer, and Stacey Abrams. As well, she recently co-edited Black Politics in Transition. I'm sure you have seen her as a frequent political commentator on MSNBC, WNYC, and New York One. She is the co-host of Fact NYC. She is a political analyst and she hosts a podcast quiz show called The Blackest Questions at thegrio.com. She's a frequent author and narrator for the TED Ed educational series. And Christina writes a weekly column for the Amsterdam News, which is one of the oldest black newspapers in the United States. She is busy and she has a huge amount of credits, which is why she is here, because sometimes we need a doctor. Welcome back, Holly Harper. Holly is a comedy nerd from South Jersey. She is the creator and co-exec producer of Hella Late with Holly Harper on Brick TV and co host of the nationally trending Twitter storytelling chat Blurred Dating. Hella Late with Holly Harper was nominated Best Actress at the 2021 New York City Web Fest. She was a semi-finalist in the 2019 NBC stand-up competition. Her popular sketch comedy show, American Candy, was named by Time Out Chicago as one of the five groups to watch. Holly works with Gold Comedy and Stand Up Girls, two programs that empower young women by teaching them stand-up comedy, and she is the creative consultant for the very successful Black Women in Comedy Laugh Fest. Yay! Ooh, it's a good show. And we get in those topics, things that we need to talk about. This is an election year, so get ready! And welcome to Friends Like Us. I'm Marina Franklin, here for you. I've got Christina. Listen. <laughs> I was about to call you. I lip-sync in church, so I can't even tune in and sing with you because <laughs> your listeners, I, you you would be like, Chrissy, I lost like 7,000 subscribers overnight. It's like, yeah, they heard my voice there. So <laughs> I'm not going to do that to you. Christina. Christina Greer, she's a doctor that is a professor at Fordham University. University, yeah. And she's informed and she's smart and she's a cat lady like me. Yeah, welcome. Yeah. Mm. Ooh, yeah. I'm trying to do the hmm after different strokes, but that's not. <laughs> I mean, I can't even hum in tune. Christina, you can't. Fine. I took trumpet lessons and like we were trying to do the trumpet. He's like, okay, so let's take that away. Let's just do the mouthpiece. Then he was like, okay, let's just take that away. He's like, now let's just hum. And so I'm not, he was like, I'm not saying you're tone deaf, but he was like, I'm right here. And I'm like, I'm right here. He's like, no, no, no. Hmm. And I'm like, hmm. He's like, but you okay. did it. You did it when you were impersonating him. Yeah, I'm just, I struggle. I know what I'm good at, and singing ain't it. <laughs> I mean, literally, when I sing in church, everyone starts looking around like, what is being slaughtered? No, and I'm like, oh, no. do they? Yes. 
So you're I don't singing go to the often. Lord's words. Know, it's all good. I'm sure the Lord's like, you know what? How about you just lip sing? <laughs> when I swing by church, like I'm here again. It's like clearly it's been a while. You don't know how to sing. Christina, how are you? It's been so long uh, since I've seen you, you know, since we went to go see that play of uh, the musical, the dance. The dance at the Joyce. At the it, Joyce. It's time for us to do more. You know, I go to the theater like every other week, so I'll find something fun for us to do. Would you like to see more dance or would you like to see theater? I'll go to see the theater. Okay, I'll find a play for us to go to. You know, I'm I a harsh critic. I did see Pearly Victorious. Okay. I saw Pearly Victorious and I've seen Spamalot. Spam mm, okay. Well, we're going we're gonna to go see some things. I would we'll love to see, see the Jacksons. Have you seen that? No. Um, or the like or Michael. More off Broadway things. You know what? Broadway yeah, does nothing true. for me, so I I like to see kind of more off Broadway stuff. I'm going. I just saw um, Sunset Baby. I'm going to see White Chip, Jelly's Last Jam, Enemy of the People. I saw appropriate. Yeah, appropriate's on Broadway. So is Enemy of the People. But like, kind of like the long-standing ones that like the tourists come in for, I tend to not enjoy this. I took my niece to see Wicked, though, and she loved it, so. Everyone loves Wicked. I have yeah. never heard anyone say they yeah. did not like Wicked. That's fine. <laughs> I'm not a musical theater person. However, I was a pick a little lady in the music man. Pick uh-huh. a little, talk a little, pick a little, talk a little, cheap, 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 talk a lot, pick a little more, <laughs> pick a little, talk a little, cheap. Pick a little, talk a little, cheat, 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 talk a lot, pick a little. Well, I'm a, I'm a Rodgers and Hammerstein girl. So, like, you give me sound of music all day long or like, Oklahoma. Like, I'm into <laughs> Rodgers and Hammerstein. But I, I tend to like smaller theaters where you can really see the actors and, like, you can see the spittle, you know? Mm. And it's just, um, you know, actors who are normally on television, but they really respect the theater and like, you know, are just trying to stay sharp in between shows. I actually was in L.A. last week and saw a really good show called, um, what was that? Brushstroke. It was really, really great. Ooh. Like just a four person play. You know, the set's really minimal and it's really about the acting, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. I, you know, I used to be, you know, I come from the theater. Well, I mean, hey, listen, did you know I'm that? A sneaky thespian, too. Um, sneaky I, thespian? Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Say that. <laughs> what do you left. mean? You snuck in a <laughs> intro to acting 101? Well, I was a thespian, you know, in high school a little bit. And then in college, I like auditioned, got into this class, was taking these theater classes. And then the head of the theater program is very clear that he did not believe in colorblind casting. So I was like, oh, so I'm just going to play like a maiden and prostitute for the next four years if I stay in the theater program. (laughs) Um, Because, you know, every star was like a white boy and like every play that he chose was, you know, Mm -hmm. to highlight sort of white guys. So it's like, yeah, let me just skedaddle. So being a professor, I mean, it's, you know, it's like being on stage. You've got your script, you've memorized it. You've got to improvise every now and again. You sometimes have a rowdy audience. Sometimes you have a sleepy audience. Um, You know, you just got to like connect with them the best you can, whether you're teaching at 8.30 or a.m. or 6 p.m. at night. Like it's just, I see it as just a, a different form of acting. What do you do when you see the the stu- the audience? Listen to me. Do your students sleeping? I used to fall asleep at University of no, Illinois, but it was like eight hundred students in one class. No, well, see, the good thing about Fordham is our classes are capped at thirty five, so like you can't just sort of be in a massive lecture hall and fall asleep. But it's like, listen, I will just walk over to your desk and I'm Marina. What do you think about what I'm saying? And it's like, uh, uh, Wait, and it's like right. And then afterwards, <laughs> it's like, let's have a little chat. So then I have a little chat. Like first, it's like, well, what's going on? Right. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to assume that 
You're trying to be disrespectful. Sometimes it's like my students might have two, three jobs, right? Sometimes it's like, uh, you teach on a Monday and I clearly had a rough weekend. It's like, right, this isn't the class that you sleep in. So if you're a sleeper, then you need to find another class. But like, this isn't the one because you, you need to participate. I also like, I try not to just talk at them for an hour and 15 minutes. So we're like, all the, the desks are on wheels. So it's like, they're on wheels for a reason. Let's like, let's break into small groups real fast. You know, scoot over, meet a neighbor. Cause I always tell people, you know, now that they're on their cell phones all the time. I'm like, I met my best friends in my intro classes. Like this is, college is the place where you should meet new friends. If you're always on your phone texting your friends who don't go to the school or who are in other classes, you'll never meet your potential best friend, like in this class. So, you know, it, it drives me crazy. It's like, we're in class for three months. And it's like, uh, what she said. I'm like, who's she? It's like, um, sorry, what's your name? I'm like, this is the person who sat next to you for three months. You should be studying with them. You should be talking to them after class, like exchanging notes and things like that. So I'm trying to like help them realize that college is a lot of like relationship building. I was like, you guys aren't gonna remember half the stuff that I talk about, but you will remember the feeling and like the feeling of like building community and friendships when you're in a classroom setting. So it's like, I can't make you turn off your phones before class starts. Like no phones when class starts. I'm like, nobody's that important. Like, you know, put your phone away. But, you know, before class starts, it's like a pin drop. You know, I played music. Um, before class just to like get my mind right and get them sort of you know shake off whatever you had going on before you came in and they just don't talk and I'm like talk to your neighbor like you don't know what they're into so that's why I try and like the more I find out about someone I say it out loud Mm -hmm. so like I'm like hey Chicago so like now everyone knows Marina's from Chicago and then someone else will be like oh I, I lived in Evanston so it's like good like so the fact that I called you Chicago someone else knows that they have like an Illinois connection with you right and so I'm, but they're not they're not really accustomed to like making friends that way it's really they do say they're less likely to go on dating apps this young generation because yeah. they want to meet they say they want to meet in person maybe they want to but they don't know how to yeah I think they don't know how and like you know COVID was real like those real formative years for a lot of them, to say nothing of like, you know, the technology, that already sort of whittled them away from, you know, kind of our generation where it's like, we're on bikes, we're on skates, we're in the streets. Um, you know, that's when parents were like, get out of the house. Yes. <laughs> right? Like, it's summertime, like the minute the weather gets good, it's like, get out. Um, but then COVID, you know, really took away like a good two years of like formative development and like relationship building and skill building. Prom. Yeah. And like all the things that, you know, you go through in high school. I mean, we've talked about this with like traveling with friends and like the ups and downs of that. Like they missed on some of the the drama of high school. And, you know, and now it's like for some of these kids, they were in like middle school. Um, But like they missed some of the really important highs and lows of relationship building um, during lockdown. Uh, And so we're sort of, I'm trying to like get them to, you know, be more comfortable with like question asking and like being wrong in front of a room full of people, Um, you know, creating like an environment that's like, uh, you know, I don't want to sound like a safe space. socialization. But like, like, yeah, like you can be socialized to actually interact with people and like problem solve together where it's like, there's this fear of like, if I say something, it has to be right. I'm like, what is the point of college then? If you know everything, you don't. I don't know everything. So we're going to work through this together. 
Um, and being very clear, it's like, I know what I'm talking about, but there's still lots of areas that I don't know everything. So like, this is why we're on an intellectual journey together for the next four plus months. Um, speaking of not knowing things, this is why I always bring you on because we need you here to guide us. I want to ask you about this election that just passed in New York city to, um, get rid of George Santos, Thoughts on Lee Zeldin and the replacement of this disgrace and ejected congressman, George Santos. What do you think of this Lee Zeldin and his approach to uh, getting elected? Well, so Lee Zeldin's like the de facto leader of the Republican Party. So they had the the election last Tuesday. Tom Swazi, who's a Democrat, actually won the election. You know, we had a snowstorm, so that did help. Uh, Swazi because a lot of his voters voted early. Oh, what did I say? Um, Lee Zeldin? Well, because Lee Zeldin is like the de facto leader of Republicans in the state of New York. He ran against Kathy Hochul, who is our governor. And, you know, honestly, I think had he had three more weeks, he could have beaten her. You know, he's a Trump supporter. He's a January 6th supporter. He's an election denier. He's a very dangerous uh, Republican. You know, he's a reminder that New York City and New York State people think are blue. It's like, no, they're purple at best, but like they could easily be red uh, given enough strategy, especially, you know, conversations about migrants and schools. Um, He's very conservative and and does the fear-based Trumpian tactics of like, people are coming to steal your things. So the interesting thing about that race to replace George Santos is that Mazzy Phillips, the woman who was running on the Republican ticket, Ethiopian immigrant, very pro-Israel, registered Democrat, um, you know, sort of, she said it, if she wins, she'll switch over to the Republican Party. But essentially, you know, she was just put up to say their right wing talking points. And it was a close race leading up to it until, you know, the day of, because a lot of Republicans were trying to do the like, let's vote the day of and like, you know, big Tuesday surprise. And it didn't work. I mean, also Tom Swazi, you know, he was a congressman before he gave up his seat to run uh, for governor. He didn't win. He'd been in Long Island Democratic politics for a very long time. Long Island Democratic politics, they're much more conservative than New York City Democratic politics by and yes, large. I've so noticed. He, he chose not to have, you know, Joe Biden come. He chose he ran a very local race, which was like, let me talk about things that are sort of more moderate to conservative that, you know, sort of five borough Democrats would or four borough Democrats would think I'm excluding Staten Island, um, would think, you know, hmm, that's not necessarily what I would say. And he's like, right, but you don't represent sort of the more conservative Democrats in Long Island. So you ran a very local race, you know, as Tip O'Neill says, all politics is local. Um, and so instead of going with kind of national talking points, he went with very specific Long Island talking points to get Democrats, independents, and then sort of weak leaning Republicans who were like, we don't need another sort of, you know, Mazzy Phillips, like, she doesn't know what she's doing. She's never held office. She seemed like she could have potential to be a clueless Santos 2.0. Yeah, she did look. And also her name, like, the, you say her name and I've forgotten it already. Like, every time I hear her name, I'm like, well, who is she? Right. But like with, um, <laughs> look, and now I'm forgetting his name, who Santos won. Swazi. Oh, Tom Swazi. Swazi. Tom Swazi's name, for some reason, like you said, because he's been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. I watched that. I go, yeah, Tom Swazi. Right. And I mean, <laughs> like, like, let's also, the underbelly of politics is that, listen, 
She's a black woman. She's a black immigrant woman running on the Republican Party ticket. As much as they say like, yeah, we can't have Democrats win. I'm sure there are some Republicans who stayed home because some Republicans by and large cannot vote for a woman. They cannot vote for a person of color and they cannot vote for an immigrant. She's all three. So that, you know, that selection of that type of candidate also didn't serve them well because they mm. still have massage noir uh, issues in their party. And so that does help Swazi. You know, not saying that Republicans would vote for Swazi, but there's some Republicans who just abstained. So here we are with Tom Swazi going back to Congress. My larger issue is, you know, why aren't these people grooming, you know, uh, getting mentees? You know, like Tom Swazi, fine, you're a great public servant, but. You've been in office for however many decades. It's like, where are your mentees to try and, you know, take over the baton? Like, it's time, yeah. you know? And we see this time and time again, where it's just like, move over so we can have more people on the bench. Um, and that just doesn't seem to be happening. But, you know, he did win with almost 54% of the vote. So it was pretty decisive. Whereas the original polling was saying that, you know, it would be neck and neck uh, and that he might not even win. Wow. It's just, it was so laughable, the George Santos thing, that I'm so glad that he's gone. I mean, I can't even, I don't understand what's happening with politics now where people, it's become like, like I was talking to you about cat rescue and I, I, I know it's weird that I compare everything to cats now, but like even as you were talking about socialization, I was like, I got to socialize kittens, you know? Mm -hmm. But also something I realized, like scammers, in the pet world, like people want to help me. And I realized George Santos, like he scammed that guy out of his money. And I was like, it's so easy to do. And I, and I, and I realized this as I was doing this, I was like, this is what he did. He just scammed a guy out of his money for a dog that was, I guess, apparently dying or did die or whatever and kept that money. And I'm just like, no, we, we can't have a person who would scam someone out of money for Yeah. Well, I mean, animals. we had one as a president for four years. So, yeah. I mean, that's Donald Trump and, you know, that's just his M.O. But I think someone like George Santos, to me, is so worrisome because he seems like he is pathological. Like, it's, you know, similar to Trump. There, It's almost like not a single word out of your mouth is the truth. And, you know, I'm he, he has several court cases that will be coming down the pike for issues large and small, you know? And I, I think you know, this goes back to what my grandmother used to always say. If you lie, you cheat. If you cheat, you steal. If you steal, you lie. Like, if you're one, you're all three. So uh, I feel like we haven't seen the last of George Santos, largely because, A, he likes the attention, but, B, you know, the federal government still has some questions that they want answered from George Santos. And now I want to ask you about your views on Mayor Adams. Now, I, I have listened to some interviews. Christina, you're very, you're, you're, how, how do I say it? You tread lightly. No, I don't, tread lightly is not the word. You yeah, give. Nobody would say that. <laughs> no, you wouldn't, I would never say that about you. Um, you give him a chance to prove himself. At this point, what do you think? You've given him you know, some opportunities. We just had like, you know, him come to Harlem last night. It was very heated conversation about a what was supposed to be a luxury apartment building that was going to be handed over to migrants, you know, people who needed somewhere to stay. And 
the Harlem community was not aware of it. There was no, there, it's like, it just seems like in Harlem, they just do things. There's no transparency. They think that black people in Harlem and it's not just black anymore. So I guess that's kind of where they messed up. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's like, why you wouldn't have this conversation with our community. I see you having the, now when I say them, I say, I see the mayor, the, you know, everyone is having these conversations with Staten Island. They have these conversations with Queens, but when it comes to Harlem, they sneak, excuse my language, they sneak shit in all the time. Right. So I do like the fact that he is coming to the community and having the conversation, but what do you see, Christina? Like, where is he in your eyes right now? So this particular mayor, you know, he came in in a system of ranked choice voting, something that we'd never tried before. You know, he gets in, he beats Maya Wiley, he beats Catherine Garcia. Those were sort of the, the second and third place um, runners up. And, you know, a lot of folks who are the traditional voters were incredibly unhappy with an Eric Adams Mayoralty, right? So do we, I, I say basically it's like the Upper West Side, Upper East Side, and then these five neighborhoods in Brooklyn. They are the majority voters, and they're used to getting what they want. And they're used to getting who they want. And he was not who they wanted, right? And so he didn't even campaign on the Upper West Side. Because he's like, y'all ain't going to vote for me. You have like six other people that you would put before me. So why would I waste time, money, and resources coming to the Upper West Side when I already know, you know, the Park Slope voter, the Upper East Side voter, like they're not my people. Um, so mm-hmm. he actually did something, which was unheard of, right? He catered to outer boroughs and people who don't traditionally show up to vote. And you still see it with all the flag raisings that he goes to in communities that have been marginalized and straight up ignored. So that's how he gets in. So for me, when he first got in, I was really cautiously optimistic because I was like, listen, yes, he's a cop. I think he thinks like a cop. I think his first identity is as a cop. But I was like, there's so many journalists and then just people I was having conversations with where it's racially tinged language, but also it's like, you all haven't even given this man a chance. Like, yes, we know how he's behaved as the borough president. We know how he was when he was, you know, in in Albany for a hot second as a state uh, representative. We know, you know, sort of, he was a police officer for a very long time. All these things, fine, and a city councilman. But we actually don't know who he's going to be as mayor. So before we say that this man is terrible when he has yet to do anything. Why don't we just give it a shot for a second? Um, And so I wrote that in the New York Times, you know, obviously the leftist went berserko. And I was like, listen, I'm just not going to trash this black man right out the gate when enough people are doing that. And he hasn't, he literally has done nothing just yet for me to say one way or the other. Mm. Well, now we've got two years of data. So we can actually have an assessment, which I think, you know, should be a fair assessment. There are a lot of things that I disagree with this mayor about, right? And there's, I think that he surrounds himself with shady people. You know, I think there's only but so much time that you can surround yourself with people who lean on the line of legality, and I'm not looking at you sideways. Um, I think that his first impulse is to be a police officer. As with every mayor, your first impulse also is to um, cozy up to the real estate industry because they're the ones who kind of get you in and out of office. So, you know, when we're thinking about um, all these crises that we're having with like rent regulations and just sort of like not having enough apartments in the city, like that's, you know, we're kind of, we're not post COVID, but a lot of people feel that way. And so the rents are back up. Now they're skyrocketing and landlords are just trying to make up for lost capital. Um, 
We also don't, though, have to be realistic about the fact that he is facing challenges that, like, de Blasio didn't. We do, I hate the word crisis, because it's like, we are a nation of immigrants. We've always had an influx of immigrants. Like, we mm-hmm. can't call people who are fleeing countries because of the things that we've done on an in- international scale. We can't say, like, oh, they're creating a crisis. They're coming here just like everybody else's grandparents and great-grandparents, you know, except for those of us who are descendants of U.S. chattel slavery or Native Americans. So, but the vast majority of Americans came here for the same reasons that we're seeing migrants on the street. The difference is Eric Adams is like, okay, Kathy Ockel, Joe Biden, I need some money. If you want me to sort of run the city, I'll do it. But like, you also need to put some money because we see time and time again, as cities get more and more, you know, people of color, we see the disinvestment of cities occurring. So like, I understand him, you know, he's smart enough not to flex on Kathy Ockel because that's his direct supervisor, if you will. But like Joe Biden, it's like, hey, I need cash, right? And so... Joe Biden has answered to lots of mayors and lots of governors and, you know, lots of Democrats. So it's an easier kind of public relations push. I do worry, though, about the mayor's priorities. You know, it's like, listen, we can't have... And wardrobe. Hmm? And wardrobe. Well, I mean, like, we can't have a series of crises (laughs) and, like, you're out at the club with, you know, sort of people who were just, you know, have been arrested for, you know, shady dealings. Um, I mean, the Fendi scarf, you know, I also sometimes feel like the press like picks on the mayor. And so then it's he's he's very Trumpian in the sense that he's a master at distracting. So like you're sitting here picking on him about this story for a week and a half. And all of a sudden it's like, wait, did he defund that over there? Like, let's mm-hmm. focus up, guys. But I mean, the Fendi scarf I thought was interesting largely because, you know, it's a $700 scarf. So one of two things, either you spend $700 on a scarf, which you are allowed to do, right? Like, I mean, well, it's just also budget. like the the image of it. I, I got to be honest, at, especially as a comedian, like I'm watching like people who were really upset in Harlem in I think they were in a church. I'm not sure. And he looks like he's dressed to yeah. go on a runway. Right. But here's the thing. Either the scarf is real or the scarf is fake. Either way, you're in a jam. Right. Because you can't say like, oh, I got it on a hundred and fifth street because it's like you can't support illegal economy. But here's but this is also, it's also just the it's the thought process. Well, of it's a like, visual. Right. Like, yeah, you well, can't it's, go not, to people. it's not just a visual. It's also like, yeah, yeah. Right. You can't go to people who are struggling dressed like what what do you think? Like, right. There's a conscience there. There's a there's a thought process there that may, means you didn't think about like like when I if I'm going into an inner city school and I'm teaching, I'm not right. going in a Fendi. Maybe right. I go in and I'm trying to show them there's a way out. Sure. But not like the way he's doing it. The image of that just says I'm sort of like into the yeah. spotlight. I need to be seen. Well, I think it's two things. Like one, you know, when I wore a wedding, wedding ring, I purposely never wore a diamond. I'm, a, I'm not a diamond person, but B, I only wore bands. And a lot of my students who, you know, came from very humble beginnings made assumptions that I too came from humble beginnings. And they were very comfortable talking to me because I wasn't mm-hmm. wearing $20,000 on my hands. Right. And so like that was a conscious decision to wear something very basic so that I could travel with it and not feel like I'm this ostentatious person. I also, though, have talked to friends of mine because don't forget, Eric Adams used to be overweight. He you know, had a whole he's written books about health. Um, you know, he's really into physical health now and eating. And, you know, he's. He's supposedly a vegetarian, yeah. but he's sort of like a pescatarian, but he's actually like a pescapoyotarian. Like, Mug, you eat meat. We don't care. Again, the lie, right? You lie about yeah. stuff you don't need to lie about. Like, just tell us you're a pescatarian, poyotarian. Like, 
we're fine. But like he keeps doubling down. Like, no, I'm a vegetarian. It's like, dude, we see you eat fish. He um, wants to be. Right. And it's like, <laughs> I don't care. But now we care, right? Because you've lied. But I've talked to people who have lost weight over the years. And, you know, if you listen to like stories that Oprah has told or stories that Mike Tyson has told, people who were formerly overweight who are now like in shape and like good shape. My friends who have who have gone through that journey have said, it's like, Chrissy, my not an not an unhealthy obsession with clothing, but they're like, I think about the way I look a lot more than probably the average person because mm-hmm. I once looked this way and now I look this way. And I'm curious if part of Eric Adams' really sharp dressing goes back to sort of when he felt less attractive physically. Because now, I mean, listen, the man's suits, you know, there was a story about that. It's like, who's paying for his suits? I then also wonder, because it's like the white press is always obsessed with how black politicians dress. They're always obsessed with their money, um, which is why black politicians, when they don't dot their I's and cross their T's. I'm like, you do know the press is always like looking at you extra. Like these are things that our parents told us when we were kids. So um, it's fascinating to me because like, let's be clear, if he wasn't a sharp dresser, then it was like, is he capable of doing the job? He looks like he just rolled out of bed. So it's like, it's a lose-lose. And like the mayor of Chicago when she was wearing those awful pants. (laughs) Well, that's also women... Lauren Lightfoot, God bless. But like her outfits were troubling. Female politicians. I mean, don't forget when Kirsten Gillibrand first came on the scene in the national scene. You know, she was told not to run. David Patterson said you could choose any Democrat in the state of New York that you want, just don't choose Kirsten Gillibrand. She was seen as too moderate at the time. But the big thing about her was like, you know, she looks like a sorority girl who's let herself go. She had just had kids. So it's just like, Mm. nobody wants to see like a woman who's, you know, who looks like that. And then as you, you've seen it with comedians, you know, we used to go boxing together. It's like, as people get to the next level, it's like, okay, we got to like tighten it up and change some things, whether it's hair, whether it's shape, whether, you know, like, I mean, I've seen it with comedians, you know, I hang out with enough comedians. I just think with Mayor Adams, there's also like, there's always been sort of like everyone the cameras don't lie. Levin, like we see that he likes to be seen. Like, oh, yeah. it, you know, he. I think he was even at a fashion runway this week. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, listen, yeah. he's like, I'm mayor of New York. Unlike Bill de Blasio, he's like, I like being here. Like, I yeah. want to be in the mix. So, um, yeah, he's not going anywhere. Like, <laughs> realistically, um, he's really, he's really into it. But I also want to ask you about like his transparency this is the thing that i think bugs everybody about him his transparency like you know like he he did the budget and then he took things away and then he corrected it and then he said like this whole thing with this migrant shelter is like um the city originally planned to make it a migrant shelter in harlem but changed course after the community outrage and it's unclear if Adams will ultimately see eye to eye on what to do with the vacant luxury property. Now, I do like, I'll give him this, very small. So I do like the fact that Mayor Adams does change course, I will say. Like, he'll admit to, I don't know if he admits to being wrong, but he will correct instead of just continuing on the same path. Would you say that's fair, Christina, or would you say like, I mean, yeah, depending on what the 
what the path is, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes he doubles down and digs in his heels and is frustrating. And then other times, you know, he's like, oh, okay, well, what are you going to do? I mean, I was really uh, cautiously optimistic and happy with his state of the city a few weeks ago. I thought the tone was on point. He had just suffered a really public loss, two vetoes by the city council, overriding, you know, his veto, um, one on solitary and the other, why am I blanking on? The one um, is on the streets. um, I have it right here. The veto for how many stops act. Right, so policing. So Adams suffered, you know, two public losses. Uh, one was about solitary and the other was about, you know, policing and having to essentially um, make a detailed record as to who they stop and when, right? Which will hopefully curtail the the data that says 95% of the people who were stopped are black and Latino. So that was a very public loss. I mean, you know, put forward the bills, he vetoed them and they got more than enough votes to override the veto. Um, but then during the state of the city, he actually had a really sort of conciliatory tone. It seemed like he wanted to work with um, Speaker Adams, no relation, uh, Adrian Adams. But, you know, he said he wanted to work with her and move forward. Um, you know, he gave a shout out to Jamani Williams, who's the, the public advocate. So it seemed like we were moving in the right direction. I don't know. I mean, don't forget, the mayor needs to gear up for re-election. And so that re-election, the primary re-election, is going to be June 2025. We already have one person who said he's going to run against him. That's former Comptroller and City Council member Scott Stringer, who ran for mayor in 2021 and lost relatively spectacularly. Like, at one point, he was sort of the presumed nominee after Bill de Blasio, and he had his own little Me Too situation um, that kind of derailed his campaign. And then it just showed a lot of people had no interest or desire to have Scott Stringer. And still don't. And listen. Still don't. But, you know, it's funny to watch him, though. I mean. But here's the thing. It's like, if he's the only one who tries to challenge Eric Adams, it could be a situation where fortune favors the bold, where if folks dislike Eric Adams more than they like Scott Stringer, then it bodes well for Scott Stringer. It also does open the door for some people to run as well, which I think would help Adams if a lot of people decided to jump in for the Democratic primary. Now, what what prevents the sheer number of people doing that, those who would do it would have to give up their seats to do it, by and large. Mm. So this is where you get fewer people, you know, like Brad Lander's a name being thrown around. He's the sitting controller. If he ran, he'd potentially have to give up his seat. So he's he's probably not going to do that. I think a lot of people are waiting to see if Eric Adams is actually going to run for re-election. As of right now, yes, he definitely is. But we do know that the feds are out there. They've already confiscated his phones and laptops and iPads, and they gave him right back. But that does mean, listen, we all know when the feds come a-knocking, they already know what they know. You know, they just want to know, are you dumb enough to lie to me about what I know? <laughs> I know. Right. That's when, when they come to you and start asking you questions. They don't ask you questions because they're in a fact. Yeah, mission. they got the facts. <laughs> they just want to know, are you dumb enough to sit here and lie in my face? So we don't know where that is with the mayor. It could just be you got a lot of shady people around you. You're clean as a whistle, but we got to find out some things about your friends. Or it could be something larger that is caught up. Is he a corner cutter? Has it finally caught up with him over time? We don't know. And so that's why I think, you know, you've got a lot of folks, state senators, state legislators, people who are already in sitting city government, municipal government, who are just like, well, I'm thinking about it because he might not be able to run, right? I mean, he might have to sit this out. Everything obviously boils down to the money. Can you raise money 
fast enough to be a credible challenger because it is very expensive to put up ads on television in New York. You know, old people still vote. And so like they're less inclined to be on social media in the same ways where you kind of get like free advertising or a cheaper advertising. Mm-hmm. So you still have to use traditional routes. Um, and so Eric Adams has been very good with that um, and good with sort of tapping into outer boroughs and people who have been ignored by politicians for a very long time. But so but we're kind of I in like a little holding would, pattern right now. I would have lost some of those people as of because I know like one of them who actually used to produce this podcast has lost some faith. Now, I want to introduce Holly into the episode. Welcome to Friends Like Us. Hey. Hi, Holly. Even though you're late. (laughs) I know. I apologize. Hi, Marina. How are you? I'm good. I'm so... The reason I have you here also is because, you know, I love that Instagram post. I reposted it. Where you had, we already talked about, you know, Mayor Eric Adams and his his lovely scarf. And his Fendi scarf, Fendi yes. scarf. And I know you're a parent that had to deal with the snow, you know, after the mayor insisted the city's public school system go remote. Instead of heeding calls for a snow day, students and educators were confronted with an epic meltdown of the software system as they sought to log in. Holly, tell us what that was like for you. Okay, first of all, that was real trash because they didn't even give parents 24 hours. Like, we're basically in the middle of the afternoon, and it was past noon, and all of a sudden they're like, oh, yeah, tomorrow's going to be remote. And that's it. And, we're, and, and why I'm remote like, and not cancel? Whatever happened to good old-fashioned snow thank day where you. It's like we run around with the sled and the, the tray and just run around? Thank you. Like, stop trying to act like this is going to be amazing. You know, like, first of all, we know how remote went the first time around. It was garbage. It was trash. And you have a whole generation of kids that are undereducated and have extreme FOMO. Okay, they really do. But for them to be like less than 24 hours before. And then a lot of parents, the only Wi-Fi or whatever they have, a little screen is their phone. Their kids don't even have a phone. Mm -hmm. A lot of parents' kids don't have phones, and they don't have computers at home. So for the mayor to get on and be trying to talk about parents like, if you can't navigate, if you can't, it's like, wait a minute, can you navigate? Can you navigate this for parents? Like, you didn't give us anything, and I just don't like it when people, does he, does he have children? He has a son who uh, lives in his brownstone in Brooklyn, but that's the one that he allegedly lives in instead of living in Jersey. His son is older, Jordan. Um, okay. People but who don't are forget, not raised- he said, you know, his mother, when he was younger, you know, she had arthritic knees and she still walked in the snow. So why yeah. can't you, Holly? And the, yeah, and the <laughs> thing is, that's not a flex. That's not a flex. Right. If your mom right. had arthritis and nobody was there helping her, that's not a flex. And so this is what mm-hmm. you want, moms. So we get, our barometer is your mama with the arthritis. Right. No, she should have been helped out. And I'll tell you, somebody with arthritis that bad is not walking that far. No, that's not happening. But I just found it real um, disrespectful to parents. Like, you are not raising... Okay, a lot of people have raised kids, but are you raising kids right now mm. with what's going on? Because raising kids 40 years ago before all this and raising kids now are two different things. Mm. I mean, my son has apps, uh, app on Blooms where I can check every subject of his homework. 
it's kind of crazy. The kids, we almost have too much access to their teachers. Um, I like a little bit more mystery. Uh, but no, I found them to be very quite disrespectful. And sitting there talking about if you can't navigate, like we're all just dumb and stupid while you sit there in your little point of privilege wearing your little Fendi scarf. Meanwhile, I'm like, I, you know, sir, I'm not really going to be criticized and schooled and scolded by somebody with some sexual assault allegations. No, I'm not. No, I am not. I'm not going to hand, I'm not going to have that. So I kind of feel like he need to be coming with a different tone. Like, hey, I realize it's hard right now. We have, it used to be a snow day, now it's a remote day. Let's all put our heads together and see how we can figure this out. Instead of just coming on, if you can't do that, uh-uh, I you wouldn't know, on that at all. that tone is a problem been. in our community, I think. When mm-hmm. we talk to each other, when we're, we're supposed to be helping each other, there is a... Um, a program to help people with owning homes. I'm forgetting um, the name of it right now. It's probably good that I don't mention it, actually. But the way that they talk to people is like, are you assuming that we're all like morons and stupid and not educated? Because it's like you're talking to a huge group of black people who've never owned homes and you're talking to us like we're children. And it's just like that needs to stop the way we treat each other, the way we talk to each other. And I feel like sometimes he's a part of that school of how you oh, talk yeah. to people. I think it's I think it's a lot of black executives. I mean, you remember how Obama, every time he talked to black people, he was just like, listen, you all need to wait and be patient. So it's like you went to other groups. It's like he would literally say, keep the pressure on me. You know, he went to LGBTQ plus groups. He went to the other marginalized communities and immigrant groups. And it's like, keep the pressure on me. Make sure I don't, you know, like go too moderate and too conservative. And like, you know, I need to, I need you all to sort of keep me honest. And then he'd go to black people and he's like, just kind of like, Wait your turn. And then he had the audacity to go to Morehouse and work out all his daddy issues talking about, you know, pull your pants up and don't get women pregnant and be a good dad. And it's like, just because your dad left you, like, don't go to Morehouse with the largest graduating class of black men and wag your finger at them and assume that they're doing bad. Like, I really have a problem with the way Barack Obama consistently talked to black people. And I think that Eric Adams does have some of that because there's this assumption that like, you can talk to us this way. Um, But I think in Holly's case, he was talking to all the parents, which it wasn't black specific. But then again, we have to recognize that the vast majority of kids in public school in New York are black and Latino students. And so de facto, you are talking to black and Latino parents with this finger wagging, like, you know, if you can't get it together, then that's your, your fault with less than 24 hours notice, with the Board of Ed not having their stuff together, with you know parents trying to log on and the password isn't working or the site is crashing. So it's like, there is. I think this is the issue that I and many other people have with this administration. There's a lack of organization that mm-hmm. they have, where it's just mm-hmm. like, who's doing what? Because you keep hiring a lot of people at these high levels making six figures, but like, it seems like the levers of control aren't really organized. And say what you will about Michael Bloomberg, and I had a lot of issues with him, but he kept a super tight ship. He did, yeah. This just seems like there are a lot of people on the ship like walking around. It's kind of like being at a Starbucks. I'm like, why am I looking at 20 people, but I don't have any coffee in my hand? Like, what is happening? And I It's feel like, like when you go to a hip-hop concert and there's too many people on stage. You're like, what is too, going on? Listen, I'm a member of the Wu-Tang Clan, Holly. Did you not know that? Because there's <laughs> so many members of Wu-Tang. It's you could have like, been. I don't know. I could have been up there. Been. Like, <laughs> Dan Allen, what's up? Um, so I just feel like that's also part of what Eric Adams is going to have to get ahead of mm-hmm. if and when he chooses to run for re-election. This feeling, especially because for black electeds, it 
you know, it comes down heavy. But this feeling of a lack of organization, like of himself and also his team and a lack of discipline of himself and his team. You can't have voters and parents and sort of the citizens of New York saying, like, who's really running? Like, who do I go to if I have this issue? Because this, you know, I'm going to this sort of commissioner and this commissioner saying, oh, no, go to this person. So it seems like you're kind of moving boxes mm. constantly. Now, it's one thing to, to have that in early 2022 when you just gotten started. It's another thing where we're about to be deep into 2024 before we look up. And it's like, we still don't have it under control. I don't need you at a nightclub talking about I got to sample the product <laughs> if during the day, my kids don't have proper internet for school, and you're at the club with, you know, your your buddies at some, you know, sort of zero bond. Like, that's, Lady, that's not going to work. It was just so stupid and poorly thought out. Number one, they didn't even tell parents in the beginning of the year that there might have been a remote option. They didn't even say that. We were never notified that it might be a snow day, might be a remote day, and here, none of that. None of that happened. So then for them to be like, okay, well, you need to do this with less than 24 hours notice. Here's another thing. A lot of parents still have to work. Okay, fine. You may be able to leave your kids at home, maybe, all right, if they're like maybe 9, 10 and above. But here's another thing. For kids to get on and do remote learning, that's going to take a little bit more supervision. So a snow day, you sitting there watching the prices right all day is very different from I have to log on from somewhere and be on the computer for four, five, six hours. That's very different. And I just feel like the mayor lacks, um, he has no gratitude in his attitude. And I don't like that. Ooh, mm. I love that. Ooh, say it again. And then they blamed IBM. They said IBM was not ready for prime time. And that's what happened here. That's what banks charged at the at the press conference and he thought he was not prepared to say whether the city will pull its contract with the company. He said I was extremely angry to hear this morning that they were not ready. Mm. Well, well you did just... did you all notice that never in any of his words did he ever say, Hey, like we all discussed before or like we prepped you this would happen, none of that language happened because there was none. All the parents I know, we were all like, we were all like texting each other, like, we're doing remote tomorrow? What? What are they talking about? What? What do you mean? Where? All of us were like, what's going on? Now, I think it, it is also interesting, though, because there's a segment of people who are just like, you know, if you cancel school, then it's like, uh, you're canceling it. You know, like, I don't want to make these dates up at the end. And what am I supposed to do? And, you know, I, I, I want to at least have my kid parked in front of a computer screen. But I think the undercurrent, Holly, of what I'm hearing you say is like, there's the lack of communication also that is indicative of this entire administration. Yeah. And so this mayor has been relatively lucky. Like we've had snow, but we haven't had like, you know, the, the snow that we grew up with. Yeah. In, you know, in oh, Illinois yeah, and Illinois. stuff like that, like, you know, where it's like debilitating, you know, when yeah. I was in high school in Illinois, our snow days were any, there wasn't even snow on the ground. It was just negative 80. So it's like, we can't go outside. So it was like, your car's not going to start anyway. So it's no school. Stay in and so, stay alive. Right. But it's like, if we think about, you know, and I don't want to just trash the mayor because I, being a mayor is a horrible job. It's a hard, it's a 30 hour a day job. You know, uh, LBJ famously said, you know, when he was dealing with like Vietnam and the civil rights movement and Republicans and like everything in the country is on fire. It's like, it's the sixties, right? Like the epitome of the sixties, college campuses are getting shot up and everything. And they're like, what, how are you handling this? And he says, it could be worse. I could be a mayor. 
Like, he's just oh, wow. like, he said that? everyone says being mayor mm-hmm. is essentially like trying to change a bike tire in the middle of the Tour de France, right? Like, it is the hardest job. And obviously being mayor of New York City is the hardest job. But I think the empathy goes out the window when there's a lack of communication to the citizenry. And when you do communicate, you're wagging your finger at parents like Holly, where it's just like, wait, if we communicated, and he was like, listen, sorry, I got caught on a weirs. This is where I think the mayor needs to be careful because if we think about the big sort of events that we've had thus far, and he hasn't had any major, major events, like God, thank goodness we haven't, God forbid, haven't had any like, you know, major terrorist attacks or anything like that. But like, we had the forest fires from Canada handled poorly. That was over the summer. We had the flooding in September, that flash flooding that had half of Brooklyn. Oh, that was terrible. You know, God forbid how many, we don't even know how many people drowned in Queens because of those illegal apartments, right? Handled terribly. We had some snow the first time, that was handled terribly. Now we've got, you know, second snow and the school system's handled terribly. You know, and I know that you've got a chancellor to help you with that, but again, communication, communication. Where is it? So it's, these are issues where it's like, you get paid what you get paid, and I get paid what I get paid to do my job. And your job is to make sure you anticipate and you have people in place so that like, hey, it isn't Eric Adams' job to figure out IBM and technology on the day of a snowstorm. But that's why you have a chancellor who you've empowered and given all the resources so that he has time and space to anticipate. Because it's like, we got meteorologists. They said the snow was coming. So, like, why aren't you communicating with parents on a consistent basis? It's like, but it's wintertime now. He it's showed January. that he doesn't anticipate when it was orange outside and he walked outside and he said, oh, this is bad. We should probably do something about this. And they yeah. knew that was coming. And that's when I knew his sort of, like, way of thinking is not being preemptive. Is that the word? Yeah preemptive is before yeah. right like i really have a pet peeve <laughs> of people people who are like a day late and a dollar short and then mm. they take it out on you and it's like no 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 i was early for the party you're the one running late don't freak it out, out. don't freak out on all of us but like seriously as from a, coming from a parent of like you know i have a 17 year old 11 year old we really went through it during the pandemic. Now, I know everybody did, but in dealing with these kids and their education, they really suffered and they really went through a lot. So I just kind of felt like we are not the group to take it out on because we've been troopers through this whole shebang. Uh, you know, I remember the days that we actually shut down for COVID. It was really the teachers and the schools that like held it together. And so for him to scold all of us, it just kind of felt like you don't really understand who lives in New York, do you? Mm. Because you pissing off parents like this, that will make or break your next campaign. Yeah. Well, and I think also, Holly, you bring up an important point where it's just like we all experienced COVID, but we we experienced this same virus, if you will. But we actually, as a nation and as a city, experienced it very differently. Like some people were so lonely and bored to the point of, you know, just like finality. And then other people, it was the exact opposite. It's like you're managing a household where it's like four people, you know, for some people, two computers or two bedrooms, right? I mean, like when when Andrew Yang, I mean, running for mayor, and he was like, oh, it was so terrible. We had to, you know, leave the city and go to our country house. He's like, we were in a two bedroom. It's like, guess what? 
the vast majority of New Yorkers are in a two bedroom right now with multiple family members trying to make it work. Like, don't be clueless Joe and, you know, clueless Joe, not Joe Biden, just clueless Joe in general. But like, don't be so clueless and, you know, out of touch where you don't recognize that like, New Yorkers are actually really struggling on like very different levels. To say nothing of black and Latino communities who also had funerals that they couldn't go to because we were by and large affected in different ways that other communities just weren't. Now, I do want to go to this very important testimony in Atlanta with Miss um, Willis, Fawny T. Willis. The Fulton County District Attorney is currently under heightened public attention after her testimony for hearing this week to decide whether entering a relationship with Nathan Wade, a lawyer she hired to lead prosecution, would be considered a conflict of interest and have her removed from her case. Now, the hearing has come with enormous stakes, as many of Mr. Trump's opponents fear that the prosecution could unravel if Ms. Willis is removed and the case is reassigned to another Georgia prosecutor who could make changes to the case or drop it entirely. But the reaction to her testimony has also generated sympathy and more support as many believe that she should remain on the case and not need to have her personal life put on such vivid display. And um, it says, I think a lot of people saw this case as one of the stronger cases, if not the strongest against Trump. So I guess, Christina, what do you... I, I mean, there... There's so many things here, you know, there's race at play, there's cultural, like, you know, when she says, I keep cash at home, Mm -hmm. there is the way that they're addressing black women in general, like across the board. And I'm sure you've seen this, Christina. Do you think that she should have had a relationship? Do you think that this is even a factor or important? Yeah. So here's the thing, Marina, and I may be in the minority of this and and I'm fine with it. We know racism exists. We know sexism exists. We know massage noir, right? We know our parents have always told us you got to be twice as good to get half as far, right? All of these things are true. I do not understand, for the life of me, why someone as smart as Fanny Willis... Is it Fanny knows- or Fawny? I thought it was Fanny. Someone said it was Fanny. I thought Fawny. it was Fanny. I don't know. I, I've been saying Fanny, but someone corrected me and said it was Fanny, but go ahead. Oh, okay. But all of these things... This is one of the most high-profile cases in the history of our our modern nation. She and Letitia James are under a microscope like no other because they're Black women prosecuting a former president. So you have to know, I'm going to swear really fast, that your shit has to be tight. It has to be tighter than tight. And we also know that Donald Trump is a master at deflection. So she has him dead to rights. We got people already in prison. We got people going to prison. We have people who have said, we got this man on tape saying, steal these votes, right? The case is, it's as open and shut as it's going to be, but it's still a former president. So you have to proceed with caution. You have to make sure that everything is crystal clear, fair as it may be or not. Right. But we know that those are the facts and those are the stakes. We also know that Donald Trump, whenever his back is against the wall, he just changes the narrative. And then all of a sudden you're on trial and somehow he's not. Mm -hmm. So knowing all of that, why, why would you risk the case, your reputation, your future, the future of this case? Like, I don't understand that. I personally have never had a relationship that good that makes me want to throw away my entire future and a case. 
That's just me. But I know, you know, when she's like, I'm not on trial here. Well, technically, no. But guess what? Guess who we haven't talked about in two weeks? Donald Trump in Atlanta. We've talked about, obviously, Donald Trump in New York, Donald Trump in these gold sneakers. But, like, the case actually has turned to you being on trial because you did do something. Now, granted, do white men do it all the time? Of course. Do we know that we can't do what white men do? Absolutely. Like, my dad told me this when I was 15 years old, working at Airstep Buster Brown at the outlet mall. Don't get your honey where you make your money. Don't do it. There's oh, enough I like people. That. Don't get your like, honey where you make your money. Listen, people say don't shoot. I never heard it like that. Be. That's good. I love that so much it's better just, than it's shit. It's plain and simple. Yeah. Like, but and I, so it's like, always. if I know not to do that at TGI Fridays when I'm a hostess, I would hope that you would know that as someone who's prosecuting the former president, one of the most high profile, important cases in the history of our nation. Wait a second. Just wait a second. Like, I'm so frustrated and infuriated that, like, we're going through this because... Of course we're going through this. It's a black woman prosecuting a white man, arguably one of, formerly one of the most powerful white men. You're not going to get off scot-free. You know that your pe- your former friends or friends can be bought out relatively easily. This is what Donald Trump has done his entire career. Why do you think all these Republican senators are lining up in lockstep? They know that he's like, listen, you either get in line or your business comes out in the street. So it's like, this is how he operates, these thug tactics. Knowing that, why would you risk the case? Because even if the case isn't thrown out, it's a delay, it's a stain on the case, it's just, it's all the things that potentially could go wrong and throw out something that is, she's put together an incredibly tight case. She's done a fantastic job. She's very good at her job. But now... We're asking, how many times a week did y'all have sex? Where'd y'all go on vacation? Who paid? How was Who that paid day? y'all had sex? I mean, like, <laughs> this is just... And so then it also goes back to, you know, and I've talked to a lot of my friends about this, obviously, you know, am I being too sensitive? Is this politics of respectability? But it's like, so now it's this whole, like, black people in positions of power, instead of doing their jobs, they're having sex. And it's like, of course that's what Donald Trump is painting this as. Because he doesn't want the narrative to be, I asked people to steal an election. But we are not even talking about that. We're talking about her and her sex life. And so that's what makes me so annoyed because I'm like, you don't get this far in life with the parents that she clearly has, not knowing that this is, this is how you're going to be treated. So That was I her just, Achilles heel. That was her Achilles heel. She's this amazing woman in all these other fronts, but because she's human, that was her Achilles heel. She's human. And she's human. And I get it, but I, I'm still frustrated because I'm like, oh, yeah, I was mad too. Case. I was like, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden I was like, right. Like, and so but I, a lot of people are like, oh, she did so well on the stand. I'm like, but she's on the stand. She's I, on yeah. the stand. But I do think on uh, at the same time, we could use this moment to learn how to deflect Trump. Like, because this is his, this is what he does. This is his game. This is a perfect opportunity for us to learn how to get around this because he's he does the same it's the same play i mean the thing is Mm -hmm. it's like trump you just go back and say well he's raped women he's talked about grabbing women by the pussy he's assaulted women he's currently you know what is it 40 indictments or maybe more yeah so like what are we doing you know like you have an opportunity to replay all the things he's done while they're focusing on her. I think that Democrats need to know how to go back 
Yes. Instead of not to throw it back. Yeah, just they're, throw they're it back. Throw it back. And I think she did a pretty good job when she was there and she said, listen, I'm not the one who's on trial here. I mean, even though, yes, she is. But I think the way she stood her ground. I'm on the stand, but he's on trial. Yeah. It's it's like, you know, she did stand her ground. And I did see a little of what I would say is while I was watching her, I would say like a prosecutor arrogance. It's kind of like, you know, doctors sometimes have bedside manners that are really bad because they get too arrogant in their position. I could see that this is sort of like maybe she needed a little bit of that wake up call too to sort of not be just the role, but learn, you know, you're not above this. (laughs) Okay. They (laughs) look at the record. Look at what he's done. They could take you down too. Um, yeah. Holly, what, what did you see when you saw her talking about specifically the money that she keeps in her house? That's made so much logical sense to me because even me and even growing up, we always kept money around the house. I always kept money for different things. Like I remember, I never forget. I got fired from a job one time in my twenties and I found like little stashes of money, like all around. I was like, yes. Like I even forgot I even had that money. Uh, it comes in handy when you're 26 years old and you just got fired at three o'clock in the morning from a waitressing job. Um, I was terrible. Uh, but I felt like there was a lot of like, why are we recognizing that people keep money around the house and other, you know, groups are not recognizing that. Um, also, one thing that really what cracked me up was when she went up to the stand and she started talking before she even sat down. That made me laugh when she was like, um, I need to have three documents up here. I need this and that. I was like, ah, I was like, she. Fanny's trying to run stuff. She's like, I'm not on the stand. I'm sitting here. Uh, yeah, but I'm still um, running things right now. That cracked me up. Um, but I just, yeah, I thought it was really sad to see her like personal, like sexual stuff, like drag through the mud. That's ridiculous. Um, it was a serious mistake, serious mistake that had real consequences. But one thing I really did love and see, I'd like, I hate watch things. I'll troll watch things was watching racist white people on Twitter be so mad at her confidence. Like there were a lot of people were unnerved. She's arrogant. She's rude. When I hear arrogant and rude, when I hear arrogant and rude attributed to a black woman, I'm always wondering what exactly happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, what exactly happened? Did she just kind of school y'all? Because the way she started talking as she was, she would, if you play it back, she had even sat down. She touched the desk and started talking right away about the three documents to have up there. So it was real interesting. And it was a, a real, to me, a masterclass on cultural differences and people's responses to uh, very uh, confident and maybe you could say arrogant or whatever, uh, black woman. But you know, Holly, I also think it's like, every time we see this, it's just more proof that like, most people don't know anything about black people. Like for us Nothing. to survive in this country, let alone thrive, I'm just saying survive. Mm-hmm. We have to know a lot about white people and other cultures. Yeah. It is so obvious time and time again that like white people don't know anything about us. And like, and it's weird. Really, it's, but it's like, we've been here longer than you. All this time. Be. Like all this time. And it's like, we are the most visible invisible people that I've ever encountered. And so, you know, like I was joking because when I was growing up, like my, my mom's parents, you know, 
there's a history of black people in banks, right? There's a history of yeah. white people burning down banks. There's a history of yeah. white people destroying money in black communities. So it's like you keep it yeah. in your house. My grandfather, we, I went down there in high school. My grandmother's car needed, she needed a new car. It was just one of those things. But my grandfather did not like to get off money. He did not like to spend money, again, because you don't know if you get fired at any moment. So it's like you keep your money, you keep it tight, you know, mm-hmm. part of the depression. He goes in the back room, comes back with $15,000 cash, and just says, don't bring back red. My mom said, like, we have to get mom a car, you know, blah, blah, He's like, don't bring back red. So it's like, so you have real money in this house, and we could only buy cars from the Plymouth dealership because before segregation ended, the Plymouth dealership in Uly, Florida, was the only one that would sell to black people. Not Ford, not GM, not Buick, not whatever. So it's like, so then after things got integrated, my grandfather was like, I'm not giving those cats any of my money. We only Why? buy Plymouths. Why? Why would I? So it's mm-hmm. like, so now I keep money in the house. And my friend's like, Chrissy, you know, you're getting obsessed. But I'm like, listen, I came in late one night, needed my braids done. Too late to go to the bank, but I got to go get my braids done. It's like, I got cash to get my braid lady. Like, I, I'm not scrambling. I was here in New York. And they, and they want that out. cash. Braids, they want that listen, cash. They, they don't want no Venmo, okay? They want <laughs> they're cash. Not, they're not playing and, with you. Yeah. But I was here when we had the blackout in 2003. Oh, yes. Not a single ATM, mm-hmm. right? Like, Nothing's working. That. The only way you could get around and get anything done is if you had cash. So it's like, so if we tie everything to this grid and everything's on our phones and everything's automated and whatever, it's like, so if somebody decides to just attack our stuff, I'm supposed to just say like, oh no, I actually have like a few thousand dollars in my account. Really? There's no way to prove it, but I have money somewhere. No. If I need to mm-hmm. bounce and get to Philly, I need to bribe somebody with cash. <laughs> I'm just saying not knowing these cultural things is like blows my mind. Like uh, even just watching, I was watching some show, was it Abbott Elementary or something? Where they were, did a school trip and the one little girl didn't want the, the other, the kids in the class that were white to see their bonnet. I don't know if it was Abbott Elementary, but it was some kind of show where oh. you didn't want, a black girl didn't want other girls to see her bonnet mm-hmm. because that is, culturally black and right. it just reminded me like when i was growing up in south jersey like i did not want uh my white friends neighbors to come over my mom was doing my hair because i didn't want all the questions mm-hmm. like i didn't want hey, to hear hey, all was she doing it in the kitchen <laughs> stop this was not even a wash day but i remember my mom you know, like on a tuesday hooking up like three plats like one uh-huh. two three with some with the big glad the bubbles remember the bubble like she was swinging we call them, your eye so taken out you call them mar- we call them marbles i always think regionally it's so interesting to see who calls them i just call them bubbles i just call them the, the big bubbles what did you the call them bubbles. in chicago marina because we call them marbles in philly i don't remember either the big the like, little braids. You know, no, the ones that they like their band, it's like a, in, but if they pop yeah. their knuckle, you have like a dead finger for the day. What? And you jump double dutch, you swing back on that thing, that thing come and hit you in the eye, that will really hurt. But oh, my whole point is, I just hated one time my friends were over, my mom was doing my hair, my mom, you know, she is the 1982, she put some blue magic um, my hair and my little white girlfriend Leanne was like, "Ew, why are you putting that grease in her hair?" I remember just being like, "I didn't want them to see me because I didn't want all the questions." Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's, it's like I realized I just wanted to be accepted. And so mm-hmm. watching people being like, "Why would you keep money in your house?" That's just weird. It just reminded me of that ew moment, like mm-hmm. people really just not knowing about you know, black I, culture. I have a bonnet that I wear underneath my winter hat because it pulls out my hair, you know, the front. And I did have a moment where I was at the comedy club. I put the bonnet on. I was like explaining it too much. 
<laughs> and I realized, why am I explaining it? They, they'll deal with it. They can just right. accept it. The journalist started really quickly, you know, went to the Kamala Harris rally and was like, all these black women were like screeching and they had their finger in the air. It's like, you know, the AKA skinnies. Yeah. And I was like, so you're in a room with 300 black women who see Kamala Harris. They all start making the same noise and doing the same motion. But you don't think, as a journalist, to ask why they're doing that. You're just going to write a whole story about black women screeching with their finger in the air. So it's like, it's this, it's not only just that a lot of white people, specifically I'm saying white people, but other cultures don't know about black people. It's like, you're also not curious enough sometimes to even ask why we do certain things. It's like, it's just, we are these props in the background to a lot of people's lives as though we don't have our own full-on lives and communities and ways of doing things. And I think when we have more and more of these honest and open conversations, and it's great and it builds bridges, but like the fact that people are still like so shocked when they like learn things where it's like, hey, my hair doesn't dry in two minutes. So like me having gym (laughs) class in the wintertime and it's mandatory swimming and I'm I'm walking around with walking pneumonia and like nobody understands why I'm like, hey, why do we have swimming in the wintertime? Like, I my hair is going to stay wet all day, which means yeah. I'm going to stay wet all day. And it's just like, what? What do you mean your hair doesn't dry in five minutes? So it's like, you're not even, you don't think about other groups. And whereas like, black people can't survive in this country without thinking about other groups. Mm-hmm. This is why black women are the keepers of democracy, because it's like, inherently, we have to think about others for our own survival, but nobody else has to and that's like the frustrating piece no it is i do want to ask you about the uh trump trial and the sneakers is anyone getting any trump sneakers and so here's the thing right he ruled i can't say this judge's name angoron ruled that what is it Angeron. Ang- Judge Angeron ruled that Trump engaged in a year-long conspiracy with top executives at his company. The Trump organization deceives banks and insurers about the size of his wealth and the true value of such properties as Trump Tower in Manhattan and his Mar-a-Lago club in Florida. Angeron, who ruled before the trial that Trump and his co-defendants committed fraud with his financial statements, found Trump liable on five of the six remaining claims in James' lawsuit, falsifying business records, issuing false financial statements, conspiracy to commit insurance fraud, and conspiracy to falsify business records. Now, it doesn't feel for some reason to me as if this affected Trump in any way. It, it, it They're already raising money, and three years that they cannot do the Trump name can right and family can't do business. Three years doesn't seem long enough. It's not very long. Mm-mm. It was this really bad. Like it just almost feels like I love the way Letitia James handled herself the entire time. She keeps a straight face. She keeps it focused. They couldn't besmirch her if they tried. Um, yeah. What do you think, Christina? Do you think this is effective at all? Well, I mean, listen, I don't think Donald Trump's going to pay this money ever. Like, as a New Yorker, we've never seen him pay his debts. So I don't know how they could make him. I I don't know. I don't think he has the money. So that's that's one and two. Um, Three years to me is a short period of time, but it sends a real message. I mean, listen, Donald Trump and his ilk, I mean, the death threats to the judge and to 
New York Attorney General James, mm-hmm. right? The ways that Donald Trump, you know, he hates black women, especially black women in power. And, you know, he was calling her some like 20th century word for like Negro or Negress. Like it was just using like racial slurs and, you know, his his sort of calling his attack dogs to just like go after her. And she was like, I am unmoved. I'm unbothered by your nonsense. Like, you will pay up. That's just what it is, friends. You can say, okay, I lost the governor's race. You remember she quickly ran for governor and then dropped out and decided that it wasn't the right time or path. And so it's like, if that's all you got, everybody knows that I ran for governor for a hot second and decided against it. I decided to stay as New York attorney general so I could sit here in court and bring you to task. So he's... He's furious, right? And he wants to sort of, you know, besmirch the the judge. He also doesn't have great lawyers. I mean, like, they're the ones who forgot to check the box so he didn't have a trial, right? And so the thing is, his supporters don't care about that because they don't read, right? All he has to say is, they're not letting me have a trial, which is, no, they're not letting you have a trial. That is technically true. But the reason why you're not having a trial, sweetie, is because your lawyers are incompetent. And they didn't do their due diligence. So he's saying, Tish James didn't do it. It's like, no, 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 you didn't do it. But... I think what's so great about Tish James is that she has been focused. Like, I am not going to get distracted by the name calling. I'm not going to get distracted by you sort of bringing up things from the past. And it's like, she ran on prosecuting me. She was like, hey, that's old business. I'm elected now, right? So like, and the job is the job at hand. And his family's been a bunch of grifters for many, many years. Anyone who lives in New York knows that. Anyone who lives in New York knows he doesn't pay his debts. And so it's a small... I would say a small step towards democracy. It's a big financial win. You add it to the money that he owes E. Jean Carroll. Um, He's got court cases in D.C. coming up. He's got court cases in Georgia still pending. So, you know, hawking sneakers, obviously. He's hawked, you know, stakes, water, university, ties. I forgot about those stakes. Yeah, I mean, like, this man is, because the thing is, as long as you got sycophants who are going to spend their last little $400 buying these cheap shoes that have red bottoms, so he might get sued on that, right? It's like, he knows that people are going to buy it, so why not sell? You remember the coins, the mm-hmm. NFTs? I mean, the list goes on. This is what he does. He's like, you know, That's the right. He had medallions and coins All, and... Yes, girl! You name it. Now, I do think if, like, we know that, you know, a lot of Russians have been buying it, buying his shoes, um, you know, some Russian CEO just bought a pair for, like, $9,000. And, like, you know, uh, the the resale value is already high up. I think it is interesting that he's trying to go into a market that he sees as very, like, black. Yes. Um, to sort of, you know, the same way it's like you can kind of judge. I mean, he's very smart when it comes to marketing. Like, I will never deny this. Because he's that. getting some black voters out here. Oh, yeah. He's getting people who are interested in in that sort of, like, pompous mm-hmm. uh, arrogance. Which is another heartache. To, it's another heartache right. entirely. But, like, the same way you can see who your supporters are based on these red hats, you know, like... If you see cats rolling down the street with these tacky gold shoes on, then that would be a visual. Like, he likes a visual of support, right? Yeah. And, like, the red hat is a very particular thing. But, like, the gold shoes, especially for, like, black men, if it it catches on, would be something that he could say, see, point to all these people on the street who might not want to wear my hat, but they are fine wearing my shoes. But, or it could just be, you sell cheap shit all the time this is just what you do and you you mm-hmm. separate people from their money like that's just what you've always been good at holly the sneakers first of all they're really ugly and the <laughs> shape like i really looked at them yeah. hard and i love a gold shoe but 
This is these. Tacky. They look kind of weird and kind of flat. They look weird and mushy. I don't know. They just look really stupid. And the fact that they had, they had to be talked out of calling them air trumps, like they had to be talked out of that, be calling them air oh, trumps. Oh, because he could like, get sued by Jordan. Yeah, he was like, they could oh, be air trumps. Nike has a lot more money than Donald Trump. I trust, I know that. Yeah. I and thought they were called January 6s. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> they called J6 sneakers. Uh, but it he's, he's so tacky and just ridiculous at this point. It just, sometimes I look at him and I'm like, are we really living in our last days that we're here with the sexual offender ex-president with the gold sneakers? It just feels, it, I feel like every time we look at Trump, I just feel like a black American could never, could never, could never. Like just the, the li- I mean, we'd be here all day if we were listing all the never things, but it's just the lowest of the low of the tacky. And I just kind of feel like people you, should be embarrassed. Yes, you should be embarrassed. Like, I just kind of feel like, do y'all do y'all see how low he's taken y'all in the past? Like nine years. It's been nine years since he went down an escalator in 2015. And I, you know, and yet he is, people don't have the same sort of pressure, collective pressure that we do. So it's like Fannie yeah. Willis does something the three of us feel some kind of way, right? Yeah. Because she's not perfect. Uh, she's, as, as Holly rightfully said, she's a human being. She's Donald human. Trump does stuff. You don't see, like, my white male friends are like, I am so embarrassed waking up and this man's a white man. Like, that thought has never crossed their mind because the same sort of, like, collective action and sort of group linked fate isn't this, in political science literature, we call it linked fate. This is theory by Michael Dawson, who's, like, one of the godfathers of political science. It's like they don't have the same kind of collective identity the way they we don't. do. Because going back to, uh, Marina, your comments on Adams, it's like when Eric Adams does something, like it looks bad for black people. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, yeah. and so like there's Dinkins, there's Adams, there's a very few black mayors of major cities um, in the history of our nation, right? Eric Adams is only the second black mayor, second non-white mayor in 110 mayors of New York City. So like if he messes up, we might never see a black mayor again. In the, in the, what just kills me about Trump is I feel like I feel like MAGA and all these the, the Republican Party, they're like a girl that just got involved with this terrible dude and their life has just gone downhill. You know what I mean? It's like and the rest of the family's like like Beth, can't you see like how low he's brought you? And it's like you guys are just trying to break us up. You're just trying to get to him and we're strong and we're amazing. And it's like but Beth, you know how he got it, you arrested. Like, don't you see? But that's a really interesting analogy you use because my colleague, Jason Johnson, uses a similar one about the country and Barack Obama. And it's like, you dated a black dude for eight years. And so now you're useless. So we don't care what happens to you. And so like this idea oh. that like these ardent supporters who were just like, burn this country down. It's useless. It's terrible. All the things that Trump says it is. It's like, right. Cause it's like, you all got in bed with this black man for eight years and basically didn't say much of a peep. And oh, now- Are they calling America up. a mud duck? They're calling America a mud duck. So now I've heard that up. term of racist white men where they said, don't let your daughter grow up to be a mud duck. Oh, wow. That dates black men. They date black men and then nobody else will want them. Don't let your daughter be a mud well, duck. I mean, but like, listen, I, I have this theory, okay? Stay with me. I think that there are three catalytic moments that piggyback on what Holly has just said. I think three catalytic moments that bring us to sort of these white sycophants that support Donald Trump. One is O.J. Simpson, black man, 
possibly killing a white woman and getting away with it, right? Who he slept with and has children. Two, Barack Obama, sort of black man who is the product of a black man and a white woman, Mm -hmm. sort of ushering in this whole like visual of like successful black people who have like made it in this country. And it's not just him. It's like a cadre of people. And then three, the Kardashians, these like super rich, relatively white women who kind of make their money off of dating black men and all of them have a gaggle of children with black men. I think that those three sort of instances are the trifecta that sort of fuel the, the fury of Donald Trump supporters. Yeah. I all know I could definitely the mud duck theory. No, I could definitely see it. Like I'll, you know, I see somebody really dupe, super duper racist on Twitter and they're talking about the Kardashians. Sometimes I follow other things they'll say and they'll say things like, you know, you yeah, we like Courtney. She's the only one uh, to have mm-hmm. children with a white man. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like that's a real thing with them. Do you know what I mean? Like she's, she's literally the only one. Yeah. She's the only, but, no, but she now is. they're all in their date white man phase, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, they phased uh, out, but they still got the brown kids. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, they phased out, but they got the brown kids, and just, it's so it's really funny. It's like there's a resentment towards blackness being chosen, like blackness being chosen, like Beyonce constantly being chosen and 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 beating the, and you know beating everybody at everything, so much that you know they're like, well, Taylor Swift is our girl, and then they feel betrayed because Taylor Swift is like not with y'all. So it's like they feel angry as if Taylor Swift is dating a black man. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Well, it's like he, that kind of anger. Previous three girlfriends were all black women. We're all black women. So yeah, yeah. Like, I think it's I think that the conversation of race and racism in this class we've race and racism in this country, we've been like having sidestep conversations about it. But like when we map it all out, (laughs) past, present and future with like these celebrities and like, you know, the opioid crisis and like, you know, poor blacks and poor whites have always lived together. Like Mm -hmm. that's just what it is. And I mean, and this is part of the Republican strategy to convince poor whites that they're better than just black people in general to like sort of not have to, give them anything and account for anything. But I I think that like these hard conversations, Donald Trump is like, he doesn't even use dog whistles. I mean, he's just sort of saying like, your basis, vilest emotions can come out so that we actually do now have Nazis marching in the street, you know, in Nashville, in like major cities across the country. Like we had swastikas and Confederate flags at the Capitol on January 6th. Like, and- He's just, you know, we had Charlottesville where he said there are good people on both sides. I mean, this is a man where it's like you still have so many supporters. Some are super poor, but like you're smart enough to give tax breaks to people just to buy their silence. There are people who know better and should do better. But because he's given them these tax breaks, they're like, well, he's useful to them. They're all going to jail. This is what I want to ask you, Christina, because I saw an article as we get out um, on the Amsterdam News Christina writes a weekly article there, which is Amsterdam News is one of the oldest black owned newspapers. So you should check it out. You talk about. Huh? Support black media. Yes. You talk about the book that you're reading right now because they've banned so many books. Can you tell us what book you're reading? And with that, tell us 
where our listeners can find you. Um, so right now I'm reading Huck Finn because I'm on the board of the Mark Twain House in Hartford, Connecticut. I'm rereading it. Many people read it in middle school or high school and hated it. Um, it's brilliant. <laughs> I think Mark Twain is brilliant. I have found that it's not, the problem isn't Mark Twain. The problem is a lot of teachers don't know how to teach Twain. And so especially black students in the class feel very isolated because some teachers just don't know how to accurately talk about race, especially white teachers who have one black student in the class, like myself, where just everyone's using the N-word willy-nilly. And I'm like, what is happening in this class? And like, are we really talking about like the institution of slavery and like, you know, sort of wealthy whites, poor whites, all the things. Um, so I'm reading that because I think that, you know, obviously when you look on the banned books list, it's a disproportionate number of authors of color, specifically female authors of color. Um, but this, uh, as a board member of the Mark Twain House, I think that all of our board should actively be reading Twain just so we understand as a board the importance of race and racism um, mm-hmm. in the 21st century. So that's why I'm, I'm leading a discussion on that next week. Nice. So I'm reading that. Um, and then what else? I'm, you know, I'm on sabbatical. I'm, I'm a Moynihan Public Scholars Fellow at City College. I'm reading, I'm writing, and I just finished an article for Living Bird Magazine, which makes me very excited since I'm a birder and I'm writing about fathers and being present and some friends just lost, you know, various parents. And so just as we get to that age where we're losing parents, just trying to mm-hmm. be a lot more present for our friends and in our own lives, but also like savoring these relationships with relatives who are older than us that we might not have forever. And then with friends like us, I can always make a new friend every time I hang out with my old friend, Marina Franklin. And now that I know that Marina's into the theater, I'm going to find a play for us to go to so yes. we can have a cultural outing. Oh. Yeah, another cultural. Oh, that'll bring be our, me, that'll bring be me thing. too. Hey, listen, I go to the theater like every week, sometimes twice a week, and I just I, I love seeing live live relationships. Yeah. I hear you. That was the, that was one of the things, you know, Holly. I know you were too busy teaching and supplementing teaching during lockdown with you know kids on Zoom. But what I yeah. really missed about lockdown was like not being able to go to the theater and like seeing people really uh, just have emotions on stage and really like build this connection. This is why I go to, I got myself, I treat myself to Nick's quarter season, quarter season of Nick's tickets because I love collective joy. Aw. Oh, wow. So, I'm also the Nick's good luck charm. So every game I go to, they wing. So that's why I <laughs> think. They wing, like, yeah, is it you? Yeah. gotta be there. Holly? Well, uh, you can find me. Okay, so here in New York City, I have a monthly or bi-monthly show called FDK. It's like FDM Kids. It's going to be at Young Ethel's Friday, March 1st with uh, my co-host, Emily Flake. That's a lot of fun. It's a great comedy show. And Marina, I want you to do it sometime soon. I really do. Um, you got to be an adult or parent or both. You got you to fit in there somewhere. You could be over 40 or a mom or somewhere in there. Um, and then I have online, I have a web series um, called Hella Holly. It's on YouTube. If you just Hella, H-E-L-L-A, and then Holly, H-O-L-L-I-E. And I'm always happy to be here because with friends like us, we going to get into the topic that you really want to get into. That's right. That's Marina right. Franklin here. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. And with friends like us, you can learn from some intelligent black women and respect us while you're Absolutely. at it. How's that? Check, Check us, us out. out.